But I think if we all take that attitude, we're going to be, we're going to do the thing that we can do. It may not be everything, but it's the thing that we can do. If everyone does that, then, then we can succeed. We can protect our democracy. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. Anyone paying attention to America right now can see our democracy is under attack. Those who would prefer to lead, or more specifically, rule, without any input from the people are doing everything they can to erode our democratic norms and civil liberties and keep power in their own hands. To talk about what's happening, what we should know, and what's being done to fight back, I'm joined today by democracy super lawyer Mark Elias. Mark is an American attorney and founder of the Elias Law Group, a mission-driven firm committed to helping Democrats win, citizens vote, and progressives make change, and Democracy Docket, the leading progressive source for information, analysis, and opinion about voting rights, elections, and democracy. Previously the general counsel for John Kerry's 2004 presidential campaign and Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, Mark was also the Democratic Party election lawyer in 2020 and 2021, representing the Biden campaign and the DNC in the state-by-state response to the Stop the Steal lawsuits filed by Trump and his people contesting the presidential results. As you may remember, Mark and his team ended up winning all but one minor case, which was later overturned in his favor. I'm having Mark on today because, as he says, you can't fight voter suppression unless you know what's happening. So I want you to know what's been happening, what's being done, and what we can do to support democracy moving forward. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, Democracy's White Knight, creator of Democracy Docket, and founder of the Elias Law Group, Mark Elias. Welcome back, Mark. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for coming. I always love your perspective on what now feels like the never-ending attacks on our democracy, because it's really you who's on the front line fighting back in court. You always kind of point out that one of the biggest ways to stop these extreme moves against our free and fair elections is to raise the public's awareness of what's going on. And the Republicans and their allies have been using voter suppression and litigation as a weapon against democracy for a long time. But now, as depressing as that reality is, I feel like you've had some real success fighting back. Yeah. You know, look, the 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 court system in this country is not ideal. You know, no. we can look at the composition of the Supreme Court and all lament, you know, what's going on there. But people need to keep in mind that that, you know, the Supreme Court hears about 50 to 60 cases a year. And there are tens of thousands of cases that are decided uh, every year around the country, hundreds of thousands of cases in the federal courts alone that are decided every year. And so we have had success. The courts have more or less they don't always get it right, but they have been more or less uh, committed and a backstop against the worst acts of Republican uh, uh, suppression and election subversion. And it's important to understand that it's really both of those things. It's it's efforts to make it harder to vote, but also ways to undermine the results if they don't like it. As I, as I say, you know, Republicans want to make it harder to vote and easier to cheat. And the courts are the backstop when Republicans do that. Right. You told an amazing story recently online about prisoners in the Holocaust who were in charge of the potatoes. And I feel like that's such a fitting story for these times. Would you mind sharing it with us before we go forward? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I've been asked for, uh, on occasion, you know, why I do this work. How did I, how did I come to this work? And also, what is my philosophy? And I, I tell folks that, you know, one of the formative experiences of my life was uh, growing up in New York. I was studying for my bar mitzvah, and I'm 54. So, you know, this is this is uh, you know 1982, and you know at that point the Holocaust was history, but it wasn't. But there were a lot of people who had been in World War II who, at that point, were not like the 87 year old. You know, yeah. these were people who who you know were in the prime of their lives, and and the Holocaust was 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 you know firsthand experience for them. And I heard from growing up a lot of Holocaust survivors, but the person who really stuck out to me the most was not a Holocaust survivor. He was an American citizen, a Jewish American. American, uh, who had been in the U.S. Uh, military, and he was captured by the Nazis. So American GI captured by the Nazis, and he is sent to a Stalag, and so he was sent to a prisoner of war camp. 
And the Jewish prisoners of war uh, in this camp were part of a crew who had agricultural duties. So it was a work camp. It wasn't just like a hangout camp, if there was such a thing. If there is such a thing for prisoner of war camps. But this was a work camp. So they had jobs to do, and they were part of an agricultural crew of some sort. And I remember him vividly saying that uh, at some point, they got the idea that they would take pieces of the barbed wire fence around them. And they would, when they were picking potatoes and sorting the potatoes, they would press holes into the potatoes using pieces of barbed wire. And their hope was that it would cause the potatoes to rot. And by rotting the potatoes, it would starve the Nazi army. So I want you and everyone listening to just think about this for a second. You're, you're, you know, you're 18, 19, 20 years old. You're from New York. You're Jewish. You are now held in a prisoner of war camp literally by the Nazis. And you are surrounded in a work camp by armed guards and barbed wire. And you set, you take it upon yourself to grab shreds of barbed wire and press them against your fingers. You don't have gloves. You don't have some protection. You are literally pressing barbed wire against your flesh so that you can put holes in the potatoes in the hopes that that is going to starve the Nazi war effort. I recounted this story and I've told it because I don't have any illusions that this podcast by itself is going to stop Donald Trump and the destruction of our democracy. I don't have any illusions that any case we file is going to be the thing that stops the voter suppression or the anti-subversion efforts or, you know, saves democracy. But every day, you in speaking out the way you do, me in hopefully the litigation I do, we are poking holes in the potatoes. You know, we're poking holes in the potatoes. And maybe it's futile. Maybe, maybe in the end, the Nazi war effort was not going to starve based alone on any one potato being rotten. But I think if we all take that attitude that we are going to poke holes in the potatoes, we are going to be, we're going to do the thing that we can do. It may not be everything, but it's the thing that we can do. If everyone does that, then, then we can succeed. We can protect our democracy. Yeah. And that's why it takes all of us. That many more people will starve that war yeah. effort. Yeah. Right. That that's the message. The message is that that I think people want to find, you know, the great people in history. They want to find the the big battle. They want to find the defining event. And what they don't realize is it is the act, actions and activities of millions of people doing small things to stand up for what's right, to protect your neighbor's right to vote to make sure that uh, that a woman seeking reproductive health care is able to achieve it. That each of these things on a one-by-one, one, treating kindly an immigrant, you know, each of these things one-by-one one will make a difference. And it's not we're not going to be saved by one lawsuit, by one case in the Supreme Court, by one big speech. It's what you do every single day, which is why I'm thrilled to be back with you. Thank you. I always say it's like water on a stone, you know, the drip, drip, drip. Eventually you get a hole and you have to yeah. keep making the effort every day. Well, you're making the effort. I know your firm is litigating 47 voting and election cases right now in 19 states and you're expecting to take on more. So you're clearly making a big hole in that stone, I honestly have to say. But since we don't have the time to really dig into every single one of those cases, I thought I would just pick a couple states that have been in the news lately and get your thoughts on them. Does that work for this you? This is what, yes, this is what I love about your your podcast. <laughs> this is like literally, I've been, looking for, I've been looking forward to this part. I'm like, let's do this. Okay. So Alabama, who refused for months to comply with the Supreme Court's order to redraw their congressional maps and comply with the Voting Rights Act. I know your firm was handling that case. And after a lot of back and forth, it looks like Alabama is finally going to have to comply. Do you want to update us on where we're at with that? Yeah. So Alabama passed an illegal map in 2021 that uh, failed to create a second majority black district. My firm uh, brought a lawsuit along with uh, some other organizations. Uh, we won before a trial court, three judges, two appointed by uh, former President Trump. Uh, so this was not a progressive panel by any stretch of the imagination. We won. The state of Alabama, rather than complying with the law, went to the U.S. Supreme Court thinking that they could win there. They didn't. The Supreme Court agreed. 
And then what happened next, I think, is a really instructive thing for your audience, which is that at this point, the state of Alabama was ordered by a trial court to draw two black opportunity districts, two congressional districts where black uh, voters could elect their candidate's choice. The state of Alabama asked for additional time to be able to do so. And then they didn't. Then they didn't. Then they drew a map that they acknowledged did not meet the requirements of what the court had ordered or what the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled. And so at this point, you had the state of Alabama in open defiance, essentially, proudly defiant of uh, of a court order. Uh, the good news is that uh, the court then had its own special master, basically an expert it retained, draw a map. And so there will now be two black opportunity districts for 2024. So good, so, so all well, all, all's well that ends well, except I want to just like point this out to you and to your audience that the culture, because culture matters so much, you know, culture matters. You know, what you see on TV matters, movies, theater, music, sports, like culture matters. And so think about the culture of what the Republicans in Alabama were doing. They would rather have a court draw map and stand in defiance of it than do their jobs. They'd rather have the theater, like George Wallace, right? George Wallace wanted the theater of being moved out of the way of the schoolhouse doors because he didn't want to be seen as complying with a court order to desegregate the University of Alabama. And think about what that says about the culture of today's Republican Party. That yeah. that in 2023 is what they preferred. It's almost as if they want to show their voters that they're willing to fight. It's performative. These Correct. Republican-controlled legislatures across the country are trying this tactic on because ignoring the law, you know, defying the law, it's just good politics for them right now. And it's the same impulse that led Donald Trump to falsely claim he won the 2020 election, even though every court told him he didn't and he knew he didn't. And I think... You're, what you're saying here is that idea is kind of infecting the whole party, right? Like it's out there everywhere. I mean, we can see this defiance happening in Louisiana, in Georgia. You point out in Democracy Docket that the Republican lawmakers in Ohio ignored five court orders over their right. redistricting, right. right? Like Florida is currently defending its congressional map, even though it totally violates their state constitution. And part of that is on the grounds that they think the constitution itself is illegal, right? Like it's just defiance as performative. Like these people are all against us and they're liberal. And I think it's pretty rich for Alabama Republicans, I guess I should say, to just openly reject a Supreme Court ruling at the same time that their party is going out of their way to accuse liberals of delegitimizing the court with their legitimate criticisms of the justices and their pay-for-play relationship with billionaire donors. I mean, the Republican stance right now seems to be, from the very far right to the Wall Street Journal to Samuel Alito himself, is that holding the justices of the Supreme Court to any sort of accountability is just another way for Democrats to delegitimize the court with their politics. And yet it's actually the conservative movement that's tarnishing the court's rulings with overturning precedent on cases like Roe v. Wade and undermining and gutting the Voting Rights Act and defying subpoenas and refusing to abide by ethic rules. And now it's the conservative movement that's openly defying court rulings that they don't agree with. So I think we just need to be really serious about what it's part of a movement. Like you said, it's part of their culture now to say, I don't, I don't, I don't like it. Defying the court itself is actually the point at this point. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm curious on your opinion on this and this is about law, but it strays a little bit, but I mean, take your point about the, the ethics rules of the Supreme Court. Right. You know, like in a parallel world, <laughs> yeah, like in a in a sensible world, in a better you world? would have you would have you you would have Republicans say, you know what, maybe these rules weren't clear enough, or they weren't in place, which you know we could talk about. But yeah, we ought to have rules. We ought to have clear rules. There ought to be clear ethics rules going forward. And it's it's a shame that maybe there weren't whatever. But like, yes, this ought to be the case. But it's it, it's it's again, it's almost performative. Like, why would you why would you stake your ground on no? There should be no ethics rules. <laughs> like, why why is that the place? But the Republican Party today, I think, rewards that. I think you're not wrong. I think they do reward that. It's it's why people like Donald Trump. It's he's he's willing to fight for me is what people keep saying. And fighting being the man and the man being the government, even though 
he was the government. These people are the government. So right. I find it very interesting. You know, the general sense I got with Alabama was they were hoping that if they just ignored the ruling and got it back to the Supreme Court, they might get a different result. Like John Roberts, who's been trying to gut the Voting Rights Act since he was in his 20s, and Brett Kavanaugh clearly had to hold his nose to make the first ruling. They thought, you know what, like maybe if we take it back, they're going to be like, oh, geez, I guess they tried. Let Alabama have the one district. But I think you don't think that's what happened, right? You think I don't. Th- I don't think that's what happened. What you just said is the conventional wisdom. The conventional yeah. wisdom is that the that the that what Alabama was doing is it thought it could if it went back to the Supreme Court, a second bite of the apple, they would garner additional vote. I actually don't think that's what happened. I think Alabama wanted to once it knew it was going to lose, it wanted to lose in defiance. Yeah. It didn't want to be seen as cooperating by following the court's orders. Yeah, George Wallace style. <laughs> Yeah. Standing in front of the schoolhouse, right? So now basically Alabama's done everything they could. They just couldn't get it done and they're going to need to comply. So that's good, right? We'll have two majority districts. That's, that's good. Check. Check. Okay. So let's talk Florida. Um, I mentioned Florida before, but I know you just won a case there. What should we know about that? Because I think a lot of people feel like Florida isn't so much the deep red we're told it is, but blue suppressed. Oh my God. So you're not going to believe this one. So, oh God. Al- so Florida... <laughs> Florida uh, passed by popular ballot initiative. Over 60% of Floridians passed what are called the Fair District Amendments. They passed these in 2010 before the last round of redistricting. Among the things that it said in those Fair District Amendments was that you cannot diminish minority voting strength when you district. Okay. And so I sued them in 2011 because they violated it and we won, right? We won before the Florida Supreme Court. So fast forward now to 2021 and the Florida legislature, which is dominated by Republicans, is not a bunch of lefties. This is like dominated by Republicans. They pass a map and they say, well, we need to keep the fifth congressional district in Florida as a uh, district in which uh, black voters come up with their candidate choice, because if we don't do that, that will diminish the ability of black voters to elect their candidate choice. Like, it's just math. And in many respects, it's like Alabama. Like, you know, you have to create two, so they create one. Well, that one is not two, right? Same thing happened in Florida. The the Republican legislature is like, well, if we do, if we take away this district, that will be a diminishment. So they pass a map to continue to have a black opportunity district in CD5. What does Ron DeSantis do? He vetoes the Republican map. He vetoes their map because it's not extreme enough. And so he forces the legislature to adopt a map that that obliterates Al Lawson's district, this uh, formerly historically black district that spans between uh, Jacksonville and Tallahassee and and forces them to to pass an illegal map. So we sue and a judge, a trial judge appointed by Rick Scott, the former governor of of Florida, conservative governor, now conservative senator. He agrees. He says, yep, like you, you, you did away with a uh, black opportunity district. That is diminishment. And now the state of Florida is appealing. And among their arguments for appeal on appeal is that their state constitution is unconstitutional. Like what kind of state uh, states are in the business of defending Look at all the crazy laws, all of the horrible, terrible, restrictive um, uh, abortion laws that that Republican AGs are defending all over the country. They won't even defend their own state constitution. So that is now going up uh, to the to the Court of Appeals and then probably ultimately to state Supreme Court. I am hopeful that uh, that the state courts uphold their own state constitution and that would be an additional district if so. And just so people understand, the ruling that they have on the books right now is that even though DeSantis got away with this for the midterms, which might be why they were the only site that had the much hyped red wave that we didn't see, uh, those maps are not allowed to be used in future congressional elections. But that is, of course, going up to the Florida Supreme Court, which, of course, Ron DeSantis himself chose most of those justices. So that'll be an interesting case for you guys. Uh, North Carolina. It feels like a bit of a bummer to me. I'm not going to lie. I know you had a win there recently, but with the legislative branch and the judicial branch working together to make sure Republicans in that state never lose power again, it just feels so sickeningly undemocratic to me. Can you tell me where we stand with North Carolina? 
Yeah, so we won a huge victory in North Carolina in redistricting. As yeah. you know, it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. We fought back successfully against this right-wing legal theory that would have destroyed judicial review in state courts called the independent state legislature theory. So we had a win. Uh, we had fair maps in North Carolina for 2022. Uh, but as you point out now, the, the state court, state Supreme Court has flipped and become uh, controlled by Republican justices. And at the same time, there was a flip of a single legislator. Uh, yeah, people been- might remember this is the state with the Democrat who switched sides to the Republicans to give them a veto-proof majority. And now that veto-proof majority is now Republican and working in tandem with this now 5-2 conservative Supreme Court. And they're out there passing just the most outrageous laws. And then the court is just rubber stamping them. And the state still has a Democratic governor, a Democratic AG, a Democratic secretary of state. But this legislator judicial combo is basically stripping them of their power piecemeal so that they can't push back. Yeah. So, so on the redition, we're waiting for the legislature to enact its new map. I've told that I've, I've said publicly, and I know they've heard me. I've been told in, in through channels that they have heard me loud and clear that if they pass an illegal map, I will sue them. Um, yeah, if they, if which they you violate, should. if they violate federal law, if they violate federal law, we will be in federal court and we will sue them. Yeah. Um, unfortunately though, as you point out across a range of issues, including, our, uh, the uh, new voter suppression law they passed, a law that strips power from their election board, uh, a whole series of other laws that I worry are coming that will affect individual rights and individual freedoms. As a result of that switch uh, by that individual legislator, Governor Cooper can no longer you know, veto and have that veto sustained uh, if all the Republicans vote the other way. So we're going to need to rely more uh, in court in North Carolina, and we're going to need to rely more on people voting because that district that flipped, you know, elections have consequences, people say all the time. But, you know, there is no excuse for a for someone to be elected in a Democratic, overwhelmingly Democratic district outside of Charlotte and become a Republican. So hopefully, if, 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 if people show up at the polls, maybe we can uh, we can undo some of that harm. Yeah, and it is depressing to people, but I think people should also see it as a huge warning light to what Republicans can do in other states if they get legislative majorities and the courts. Uh, It's what they were trying to do in Wisconsin and what we were able to stop with the election of Justice Protosiewicz in the spring. But it just sort of shows us how fragile a hold people really have in our democracy and how much we have to be paying attention and how much we have to be voting. Yeah. And let me say, and let me say on the Wisconsin thing real quickly, you know, the work that you and your audience and others in this movement have done, it was not just electing a good progressive state Supreme Court justice, but just recently, you know, after weeks and weeks of threatening about impeachment, the spotlight of America shined on that legislature. And just a couple, you know, recently, the Republican Speaker of the House seemed to back away from the threats of impeachment. And that's that's entirely due to public pressure, right? Let's be honest. It's not like it's not like all of a sudden the Republicans woke up and said, oh, my God, this would be wrong. That is public spotlight and pressure. So thank you. Yes. And thank you to everyone in the audience and everyone who actually called and sent money and really helped the wisdoms, because this is the thing. This is what I want people to always remember. We can make change. It can get better, but it just takes work. I heard somebody say recently, hope is not passive. Hope is active. It is an ax breaking down doors. You have to put in the work, but then you can actually see the change. Um, And I just... The, the Wisconsin thing is really very wonderful, actually, because yeah. the, like you said, they didn't back down from the goodness of their hearts. They backed down because they were like, Whoa, everyone's looking at us. So last state we're going to do, New York. I feel like New York is kind of a hopeful example because the Democrats basically lost the House on New York alone. And it seems like we're going to have different maps for the next election. Yeah, I hope so. So uh, people, what people need to understand about New York redistricting is that the map that was used in 2022 was drawn by a court special master in um, a very rural red part of New York. The judge uh, who heard this, the Republicans brought a lawsuit against the map that had been enacted. A judge in Steuben 
County, New York. I know you, for some period of time, lived in New York. I bet you, I you did, never but visited. in the city, I lived in Manhattan. I bet you, you don't even know where Steuben <laughs> County is. But Steuben County is is about nine hours by bus from New York City. Uh, it's a very rural red area, and the map that was drawn, frankly, just does not represent the 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 demographics or the political composition of the state. The diversity of New York City was not really taken into account in rural New York. Uh, uh, so my firm brought a lawsuit to, to simply ask that the bipartisan Independent Redistricting Commission, it's literally called the Independent Redistricting Commission, and it is bipartisan, that they are told to draw a new fair map for 2024. That, okay, fine, if the court thought that the map for 2022 wasn't appropriate, that is what it is. I didn't agree, but fine. But that the bipartisan Independent Redistricting Commission should be allowed, should be ordered, not allowed, should be ordered to draw a new map for 2024. I think everyone acknowledges from left to right, the center, the good government groups, the partisan Republicans, the partisan Democrats, I think everyone recognizes that if that happened, if you had a bipartisan independent map, Democrats would probably gain four to six seats. So that yeah. gives you some sense of how out of skew this map is. Because four to, gaining four to six seats would be like the place the bipartisan independent redistricting commission would come down. So, of course, the Republicans are fighting against this. They don't want to allow the independent redistricting commission to draw a new map. Uh, we won in uh, the intermediate court, and now the court case will be heard uh, next month in the high court in New York. So I'm optimistic that there'll be a new map in time for 2024 in New York. My That's great. And that would be wonderful. It would also help us win back the House or at least counter what's going to happen in North Carolina. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And look, and look, you look at those, you look at what those House Republicans right now, you know, those are all MAGA Republicans. I, you know, there, there are no moderate in the in the in the Republican conference, but those those uh, Republicans are looking at the Kevin McCarthy ouster on one side and George Santos on the other side. They need gerrymandering to keep their seats. Let's be they clear; they need yeah. they need it. And so, a fair map, you know, putting their votes for, with Kevin McCarthy and the damage that they've done to this country before the voters, uh, they know what that would mean. Yeah, they do. So we're seeing the gerrymandering and the voter suppression continue because that's what they need to do it. What, what what other tactics are you seeing that have changed since the 2022 midterms? Like what new laws should we be looking out for? Are there new types of lawsuits on deck to keep people from voting? I know you recently wrote a piece about the growing threat of Republican election vigilanteism. So what did you mean by that? If you're a bra wearer, you know there's nothing worse than an uncomfortable bra, which is why I'm so pleased to be partnering with Honeylove, who's revolutionizing the bra game. Where traditional bras use the dreaded underwire or bulky fabrics that end up trapping in heat, Honeylove's bras feature supportive bonding that eliminates the need for underwire without sacrificing any lift. Plus, they're made with fabric that's just so soft it feels like a second skin. There's no way you won't immediately feel and see the difference. It's next level comfortable, which is a big deal because most of the time we can't wait to take the damn things off. If you're looking for comfort or you want to match with Honey Love's amazing shapewear, you're going to want to go with their best-selling crossover bra. If you want a more loungy type bra, you're going to want to try the V. It offers the support of a traditional bra, but without the underwire. Designed with molded cups to lift and separate, it will not create that dreaded uniboob look. I personally have the black crossover and the matching superpower short, and I love them. But I think I'm gonna go back for the every event bundle too. It includes everything you might need to go out to any event and feel good. It seems like a really good investment. Checking out their website, I think you will find that Honey Love has you covered for everyday looks, workouts, weddings, special events, and more. And for a limited time, we can all get Honey Love on sale. Treat yourself to the best bras and shapers on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com slash politicsgirl. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off at honeylove.com slash politicsgirl. And if you do go and buy something, let them know you heard about it here. It really helps them know who is out there supporting the show, and it's really worth it. So ditch the underwire for good with Honey Love. Honeylove.com slash politicsgirl. And I'm back talking about my amazing Lomi. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps into plant food in under four hours. We know the planet is facing a major crisis, so I find any reasonable step I can take to limit my family's personal carbon footprint, I'm all into it. 
It's not hard to see that we all make a ton of food waste. You don't even realize how much you do until you start to collect it using a product like the Lomi. Every vegetable cutting, leftover dinner, dead produce that lives in my fridge, it goes in the Lomi. So instead of ending up in a landfill, releasing methane into the air, it's composted down into nutrient-rich Lomi earth that you can then feed to your plants or your lawn or your garden or just throw in the garbage. No word of a lie, with the Lomi, our family went from three to four bags of garbage a week to one. Plus, with Lomi's new app, you can track your environmental impact, earn points for every cycle, and redeem for freebies from Lomi and other great brands. I keep going on and on about how much I use my Lomi because it's true. If you can, you really should look into one. Not because they sponsor the show, but because they're actually an amazing product. If you want to join my family and start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash politicsgirl and use the promo code politicsgirl to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash politicsgirl and use the promo code politicsgirl at checkout. I wish everyone could have one of these machines. For those of you who don't know, I have a super rare lung disease. Although the scarring in my lungs is where the disease originates, it's my heart that's actually affected. I know what high and low blood pressure can do to your health. So I can say from personal experience that heart health is essential and supporting a healthy blood pressure is something, if we can, we should incorporate into our daily routine. In fact, statistics show that more than half of the US population would benefit from blood pressure support, which is why I'm pleased to be talking about humans' Superbeat Heart Chews. Superbeat Heart Chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure and promote heart-healthy energy. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Superbeats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. And with over 30,000 five-star reviews, Superbeat Heart Chews are really having a moment. Superbeat Heart Chews are plant-based and support healthy circulation. So not only do you get blood pressure support, but you also get productive heart-healthy energy without the crash. Effective and clinically studied, Superbeats is the number one pharmacist-recommended beat brand for cardiovascular health support. Double your potential with Superbeat Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Superbeat Heart Chews and 15% off your first order by going to getsuperbeats.com and use the promo code POLITICSGIRL. That's getsuperbeats.com, code politicsgirl. Do you have trouble sleeping? My husband didn't used to have any trouble. In fact, it was a running joke that we would get into bed and I'd have about a thousand things to talk about and he'd already be asleep. But he's been so busy and had so much on his plate lately that it started to really interrupt his sleeping pattern. So we started drinking Beam Dream before bed. Beam Dream is a healthy hot cocoa for sleep. It contains an all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. In fact, a recent clinical study showed that Dream helped 93% of users wake up feeling more refreshed, and 93% reported that Dream helped them get a more restful night's sleep. Well, you can now count my husband in that statistic. He's been loving it. You just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and drink it at bedtime. I can see why people are raving about it. Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health and affects our performance throughout the day. If we're not getting enough of it or the quality is off, forget it. If you want to feel good, then having a consistent nighttime routine that gets you the rest you need is non-negotiable. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam Dream Powder, their best-selling hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like sea salt caramel, cinnamon cocoa, and chocolate peanut butter. Find out why Forbes and the New York Times are talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl for up to 40% off. Beam Dream. Better sleep? has never tasted better. I know you recently wrote a piece about the growing threat of Republican election vigilantism. So what did you mean by that? Yeah, that is the, look, I think that's going to be the dominant theme, unfortunately, for 2024. Okay. Um, so I'm glad to be able to, to say that here for the first time on a podcast. Yeah. Like, 
People, you know, if if 2020 was dominated by rules around mail-in voting, which they were, and I wrote a piece in Democracy Docket literally days as the pandemic was starting, saying, hey, guys, in 2020, we're going to have a big thing about mail-in voting. I am here to shout at the top of my lungs that the challenge for 2024 is going to be Republican vigilanteism. Remember what I said, Republicans want to make it harder to vote and easier to cheat. And we can't ever forget the easier to cheat part of it. After 2020, what Donald Trump tried to do was cheat. What he wanted the state of Georgia Secretary of State to do was to cheat. What he wanted to happen in state after state was for officials to cheat. And what they have been working on on their side for the last uh, three years has been to try to figure out how to effectuate the mass disenfranchisement of voters, the challenging of ballots, the, the intimidation and harassment at the polls, how to do it. And one of the things I think they've realized is that if it's done by the state, you know, if it's done by uh, election-denying officials, we sue them. But what if, but what if it's done by armed vigilantes right. at drop boxes? That may sound like fanciful fanciful claims. We saw it in 2022 in Maricopa County. We saw yep. that in Maricopa County. What, what if what, it's- Just so you know what Mark's talking about is you might remember there were actual armed vigilantes with video cameras harassing people at drop boxes in Arizona. Um, last month, New York State Board of Elections let people know that there were people impersonating county Board of Elections staff in order to intimidate voters based on misleading information. Like there are people out there, individuals. So it's much harder to sue individuals who are out there doing this vigilanteism to stop voter suppression when they're actually part of a voter suppression effort. And they might not even be aware of it, quite frankly. They might think they're doing good work. That's right. And so that we saw 100,000 voters challenged in Georgia yeah. By by these same sort of groups of of loosely connected, as far as I can tell, loosely connected individuals trying to deprive people of the ability to vote by filing mass challenges, uh, voter challenges against them. And as you say, it's much harder to combat that either whether it's in court or even through the kind of public education um, efforts that you are so good at championing. It's much harder to deal with when it's an, it, you don't know who it is you're, you don't, you can't point to one thing or one group. Yeah. It's the idea, it's this idea of like, I saw them passing a thing and you should look into these votes and everything that happened in this district is probably, and that they have to look into it, which then leaves the poor secretaries of state who are already being threatened with death threats and already have all this, they have to do all of this work to justify all the votes when there probably wasn't a problem in the first place. But these people, especially in the right wing, they're being recruited to do this work, to come out there and really uh, disenfranchise voters and scare them away from the polls. And then if they did get a vote, challenge what was happening in right. the voting itself. Yeah. And to intimidate the election workers, right? right? I mean, you know, one of the provisions in the North Carolina law that they just passed that has not attracted as much attention is a provision that increases the number of partisan poll people, partisans in the polling places while people are voting and giving them more rights. And so, you know, I sometimes say this to folks, like if your elderly, you know, mother came to you and said, I want to volunteer to be a poll worker. You know, in 2020, you were like, well, but there's COVID. In 2022, you were like, well, there's still COVID and like there are some crazy people. In 2024, you know, you're like, mom, there's all of this stuff. Plus, there's going to be like these armies of Republicans who are going to be like looking over your shoulders. Like it is an effort to not just intimidate the voters, as you say, not just to create more work for the um, for the secretaries of state, but, you know, to intimidate and to make it harder to just administer the elections. Yeah. Yeah. And we all saw what happened to Shea Moss and the, Correct. You know, like Right. And isn't that a message? Isn't that, wasn't there a point to send a message, not just to victimize Shea Moss, but to send a message to the next Shea Moss? And that's, that's why I worry about this vigilanteism for 2024. Yeah. And so we should all be looking out for that. If you see people intimidating people, or you see people trying to threaten people, or you see people walking around with guns outside your polling station, know this is part of a concerted effort to make people afraid or stay away from voting or be intimidated at the voting. This is the new tactic, along yes. with voter suppression and gerrymandering and all these things. And this is, comes from a party that can't win on votes or personality, so they have to win by making sure other people don't vote. And this is what we need to be aware of right around the country, which kind of brings me, I know this is 
sort of long, but it kind of brings me to Eric, not the blonde Trump brother, but the Electronic Registration Information Center, which is about a 30-state combination, both sides of the aisle, they share information, right? So it's data sharing so that states can help each other with voter roll maintenance, right? They'll, if you have duplicates, if someone moved, if someone died, these states would share information, which made it easier and more accurate to understand our voter rolls. But now it seems like the Republicans are introducing even more chaos into our election system by pulling out of Eric and even starting their own kind of version. Can you just briefly synthesize that so people understand what's going on with Eric? Yeah. So if you needed proof that Republicans don't care about um, the integrity of elections and just want to cheat, then this story about Eric is all the information you need. Eric was created not by a bunch of liberal Democrats. It's not like it is not something like you never heard me before come on and extol the virtues of Eric. Eric is a way to remove people from the voting rolls. It is a way to make sure that if Mark Elias moves from New York to New Jersey, New Jersey to Connecticut, Connecticut to California, that when he winds up in California, which I promise you I won't, uh, that when he winds up in California, California has a way of communicating the fact that I now live in California with New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. So I get removed from the voter rolls in those three states, and I'm only on the voter rolls in California. So it is literally a process by which states share information to remove voters who died, voters who moved, to just make sure that all the voter rolls seem clean. It is literally the dream of the right wing who claims that what they want is to make sure that there are not dead people and people who moved and ineligible people on the voters, voting rolls. That is what Eric is. So what did they do? They've left Eric. Yes. Think about that. They left Eric. If you are really concerned about election integrity, why would you leave a system whose sole purpose is to remove ineligible voters from the rolls? Think about that. Why would you do that? I'll tell you why I think they did it. I think they did it because they want the voter rolls to be a little messier so that when the vigilantes come in and say, you need to remove people, and then that propaganda fails, the Donald Trump gets to say it was all fraud. It was all fraud because look at the voter rolls. The voter rolls had massive numbers of people on them and the, and that were never removed. And why were they not removed? Because the Republican states left Eric. They are trying to break the system so yeah. that they can later falsely claim fraud. Yeah. It's like if you have a bookcase full of books and you take away the bookcase and then all the bookcase books are all over the floor and you're like, this is a mess. This is why we can't trust it because they don't know how to put their things away. But they actually remove the bookcase themselves. I mean, it just feels like another way to chip away at our faith in democratic institutions. You know, it's just part and parcel of the same idea of sowing doubt in our election system. And I know that Florida's pulled out of Eric and Alabama, Louisiana, Missouri, they're all out. And they've started their own... Republicans have their own data sharing system now called Eagle AI, which is ridiculously performative patriotic name, but it claims to have developed a product that uses the data to flag anything that is potentially fraudulent, which is, of course, just more election vigilantism. But also Eagle AI, Eagle AI is a private company, and it appears that that their customers will not necessarily be states, they may, those customers may be these right-wing vigilante organizations. In other words, Eagle AI is not a consortium of states. Eagle AI is a company that claims to have developed some proprietary software, someone referred to as Excel on steroids, that will allow the compilation of names that they believe are duplicated and should be removed. Right. But but the states got out of the compact where they would have known if they were duplicates. Right. Literally, they left a compact that would have been 100 percent certain if there were duplicates. And instead, they now want to rely on this third party vendor who God knows where they get their data and who they're going to sell this access to. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly suspect. And even more so when you learn that like leading anti-voting movement people and super wealthy conservative donors are really enthusiastic about it. (laughs) It just tells you who's into it. All right. Well, finally, before I go, I would love your thoughts on the Trump indictments related to his attempt to steal the election. So I know that recent correspondence in the Jack Smith DC case has people in Trump land communicating back and forth that they knew they were losing all their court cases in 2020 and they had no legal leg to stand on. And yet they continued to attack our election infrastructure and our faith in the system anyway. So how do you think that is going? 
I, I, I think Donald Trump, I have said this, I think Donald Trump needs a really good lawyer. He doesn't seem to necessarily have the best legal team or best history legal team. But Donald Trump's in a lot of trouble in Washington, yeah. D.C. You know, I suspect it appears he's in a lot of trouble in these other cases as well. But I I, I work in Washington, D.C. I know the D.C. courts well, and and I do a fair amount of criminal criminal defense work, uh, particularly in and around election laws. And, and um, Donald Trump is in a lot of trouble. His conduct around the January 6th uh, insurrection, the time leading up to it, is going to put him at a, at a serious risk of conviction and prison, prison time. And frankly, his statements, his continued statements, um, are only hurting him. You know, like at one point, I thought maybe his best defense is going to be a advice, a counsel defense that would be wouldn't work. I mean, it doesn't for legal reasons. I won't bore you with it wouldn't work, but at least it would have some jury appeal. You know, juries would be like, oh, you know, all these lawyers. But Donald Trump's statements make clear he made the decision himself. Like, I can't remember which reporter he said, but he told one of the reporters he made the decision himself. Uh, So uh, I think that Donald Trump uh, uh, is uh, is. He is guilty, in my view. Uh, he obviously will get a free, fair trial, uh, presumption of innocence. But my my view, the the evidence against him is pretty overwhelming, uh, and it's not clear to me that he is setting himself up for a legal defense. And I just want to remind everyone in the audience: politics is politics. Politics is you know what you say on the trail. Politics is what you say to try to get elected. But the criminal justice system is not set up to yield to politics. Like Donald Trump is not going to talk his way out of, he didn't talk his way out of an indictment. He may have talked him the way into an indictment and he's talking himself into a conviction. Like he's probably just going to get convicted anyway, but like every time he opens his he's mouth- He's not helping, him, yeah. He's not helping. Which is why he's probably has trouble getting a lawyer. <laughs> right. So I don't want people thinking that, well, he's like making political points because that's, this case is going to trial. This case yeah. is going to a jury and he's in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And I think one of the things, because I like to talk about big picture here, I think one of the things you point out in Democracy Docket that we should keep in mind is that he didn't do this alone. Yes, he's the catalyst. Yes, he's the instigator. But there, that indictment includes six co-conspirators, five of them who are attorneys, who all knew they were using false claims of election fraud to convince state legislatures and, and election officials to subvert legitimate election results. And these lawyers were intentional in their deception and bad faith arguments. Donald Trump doesn't get to walk away with this. He knew exactly what he was doing too. But I think you very smartly point out that these people that are involved, these co-conspirators, they've rightly in some ways become the objects of ridicule and punchlines, you know, from Four Seasons landscaping to releasing the Kraken to Rudy's hair dye running down his face. Like we make jokes out of it, but you point out that to look at these people like they're just wingnuts it minimizes their culpability and it distracts from the rot that's truly poisoned the deepest ranks of Republican legal establishment. And I think we need to be really clear about that. Yeah. And I think that there is a through line here. Yeah. You know, there's a through line from Alabama to this this D.C. criminal case. And it is the the utter moral bankruptcy of the Republican legal establishment. You know, whatever the Republican legal establishment claimed it believed in in the 1980s and 1990s, 2000s, 2010s, it is clear now that this is a legal establishment that has some of its most prominent lawyers um, who are some of whom are now under indictment in the in the in the case in um, in Georgia, but who are spelled out for having engaged in conspiratorial conduct with Donald Trump in D.C. Uh, they continue to many of them continue to spread provably false conspiracy theories about elections. They continue to defend voter suppression laws that are indefensible. They are representing states who are defying court orders. And there has to be a reckoning by the bar about how they treat lawyers in this world. But the Republican legal establishment has a lot to answer for. And so far, it doesn't appear that there is that much of a movement. There have been some voices. George Conway is a prominent uh, conservative uh, Republican lawyer. He's spoken out very loudly and eloquently. But there there have been relatively fewer Republican lawyers 
talking about the problems with the Republican legal establishment. And there have been, frankly, some former Republicans, you know, Casey Hutchinson, a good example, talking about it at the political level. And, and, and that's a reckoning at the, le- in the in the bar that I know is hard for lawyers because they want to be protective of the lawyers. But I think it's really, really urgent. Especially the ones that are still peddling election lies and conspiracy theories and still getting away with it within their party. They're still, yeah, you know. Because lawyers have a, lawyers in the United States have an, have a special, um, a special set of rights. Lawyers have the exclusive ability, you know, you can't represent someone in court. Only a lawyer can. Lawyers have an exclusive right. And with that comes ethical responsibilities um, to the law, to the courts, to the constitution. And uh, it is ultimately going to undermine democracy in another important way. If people come to view, and this is why I said it's the through line of the judicial ethics, it's the through line of, if people come to believe that the courts and the legal establishment are just kind of like, you know, part of the political problem, then it's another way democracy will be undermined. Yeah, we have to have people working within the rule of law if we're going to believe in the rule of law and live under the rule of law. Right. Yeah, these people should be pariahs, but they're not, and that should concern us. No, they're celebrated. I think I think I saw something that I can't remember which one it was, whether it was Clark or it was one of the others. They're like on the speaking tour. They're 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 being feted by conservative audiences. I'm sure, you know, not a lawyer, but I'm sure you follow the, you know, Mike Flynn, <laughs> uh, uh, the pillow guy, you know, the, they, the right wing has turned these people not just are they not pariahs in their party? They have become headliners. Yeah, it's the Kyle Rittenhouse syndrome. Right. Well put. Yeah. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Mark. Your work and the work of your entire team at the Elias Group is so instrumental in the future of our democracy. And I am so grateful you are all out here poking holes in those potatoes. So please tell people how they can keep up with the cases you're working on so they will know what you would have them do moving forward to protect democracy in their own states. Yeah. So look, I started Democracy Docket in 2020 as a free resource so that people could get accurate information about what's happening in court. We not only do we publish articles and alerts, but we also uh, provide links to the actual court filing. So even if you're out there listening and you're a MAGA Republican and you don't believe anything that we say, you can still go and see the actual court rulings. You can see what the court said. You can see what the parties argued. Um, We put out a daily and uh, weekly newsletter, a daily news uh, update and a weekly uh, newsletter. It's all free. And so all I ask you to do is go to democracydocket.com and click on subscribe. Uh, you won't get spam. We don't uh, We don't sell your names to other people. We just want to give you good, accurate information about what's happening in democracy and what's happening in court. And it is excellent. I can highly recommend it to everybody. Democracy Docket is a wonderful place to know what's going on in the country and what's coming up next and what you shove your eye out for. So thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate it more than I can say. And I hope you will come back again in the new year and we can talk about how all the other cases are going. I absolutely will. I love you on social media. I wish I wish Twitter was not so terrible. I know. <laughs> but I love watching your videos. Uh, they are spectacular. And now your podcast is on my must listen to. So I look forward to coming back. Thanks, Mark. So that was Mark Elias reminding us that we aren't just fighting election suppression and subversion. We're now fighting election vigilantism and the new strategy of standing in defiance of the law itself. The Republicans have decided it's simply good politics to look like you're fighting a corrupt system when they themselves are corrupting it. We can't allow it. We have to stay vigilant, fight back, and continue to shine a light on every tactic they're using to disrupt our democracy. That way we'll have more Wisconsin's and less North Carolina's. I want to thank Mark for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now go follow Democracy Docket and support the good lawyers fighting for us in court. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.